Amen, friends. Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. We are entering into the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We have covered a few things so far, and I want to begin by briefly reminding us what we've seen. We've, we looked first at the what are typically called the Beatitudes, Jesus' declaration of blessedness on certain people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for example, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw in the Beatitudes that the foundation for the kind of righteousness that the kingdom of heaven calls for is the blessedness that God offers, is the mercy that he gives in Jesus Christ. The saying, blessed are, is foundational to righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. That's significant because yesterday, or yesterday, last week, feels like yesterday. Last Sunday, we saw, as we looked through Jesus' statement about better righteousness and all of the examples he gave we saw that he calls for a kind of righteousness that is unique that is different that is of a different category than the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees we said basically that he is calling for this kind of redemptive righteousness that participates in the bringing of the kingdom of heaven by essentially invoking the kind of sin fighting righteousness that jesus himself brings it's a better righteousness and it's based on the mercy that he's given already in the beatitudes today jesus is going to talk in matthew chapter 6 about one aspect of that better righteousness and that's this idea that the better righteousness that is called for has a particular aim or goal in mind it's not merely doing right or doing good in itself but it's doing good and doing right for a purpose, and that that righteousness is easily aimed at something other than what it ought to be aimed at, namely our own glory, our own satisfaction. We'll see that this morning, the proper aim of the kind of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven is the glory of God. We saw that in preview already when Jesus talked about us being salt and light and others giving glory to God because of the good deeds they see in us. All of this connects to where Matthew himself, as a gospel author, is going with this story of Jesus. What he's trying to show us about Christ. We said as we started the book of Matthew, that the main point of the book of Matthew is that Jesus, the Messiah King, climactically fulfills the Old Testament. By inaugurating this kingdom of heaven, through his life, his death, his resurrection. And when that happens, what he does is he creates this new people of God. <clears throat> Excuse me, a new redeemed people of God. And he fits them to follow him in the global mission of God. That's what this Sermon on the Mount is doing. What Jesus is doing in giving this sermon is he is fitting his new disciples for what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. What life following the mission of God looks like. He's fitting them for participation. If you might remember from last week, uh, we talked about how this redemptive righteousness is participation in bringing the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's fitting his disciples for that participation. The problem 
that arises as we consider the kind of righteousness that the kingdom of heaven calls for is that even redemptive righteousness, even good acts can be unrighteous if the root or the aim of that act is wicked. Give you an example. When I um, was first teaching special education, I taught at a day treatment, which is a facility for students that can't handle the mainstream school because of different behavior disorders and different challenges they experience. And one of my... One of the things I experienced in my own heart as I worked at this facility was that I started out with good intentions, desiring to serve these kiddos and show them valuable as people made in the image of God. But slowly my intent and my aim drifted to where I really enjoyed the fact that when I told people about what I did for a living, they told me how good I was and how they could never do it. And that that became sort of the goal of my doing this good thing. And that happens subtly and slowly and over time in all areas of good works that we do. You do something good, and when we recognize good as good, we receive praise from man. And that slowly filters down into our heart and becomes what we crave. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. This, this idea that the, the redemptive acts we do, the righteous acts and works we do, can slowly become ends in themselves that feed our own ego. He warns against this tendency in verse 1, and then he gives us three examples of how this applies in the rest of the verses. So that the main point, what I believe is Jesus' main intent in this text, is already in verse 1, and it's really super clear. And then he gives examples to help us understand more clearly what he's driving at. And so I'm going to pray one more time. And I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to walk through his main point and his three examples. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, I pray that you would help us as we consider the true aim of righteousness, the proper aim of righteousness. As we consider how the danger of ending up pursuing righteousness for our own gain is so prominent and so easy to fall into. I pray that you would bring conviction in our hearts. Lord, I pray that this conviction would not be an end in itself, but would turn us to cry out, just like we sang, lead us back to you. And I pray that you would meet us with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see it in this text. Would you do these things, and more than we can ask or imagine, would you do what you intend to do this morning through your word as we study it together, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Would you follow along as I read the text for us? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Verse 1, friends, Jesus begins by talking about his aim in this teaching. What he is getting at, and it's very simple. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. When Jesus says beware, we know the tone then of his particular teaching here is a warning. He's trying to tell us of a danger that exists in pursuing the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Namely, doing our righteousness in order to be seen by others. Good action, in other words, with a wicked motive. Jesus is saying beware of doing good deeds for others approval. The key issue here is whose approval are we seeking? That gets at the question of motive, right? Why are you doing these good things? Not necessarily that they may be bad things, right? The, 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 the hypocrites giving to the poor was not a bad thing. But the question was, why are they doing it? What is their motive behind their giving? Notice there's two possible sources of approval we could be seeking. Jesus lays them out in his teaching. Notice how often father is repeated. That's one of the sources, right? Notice the other word that is repeated over and over, and that's others. Father versus others. Whose approval are we seeking? Another way to think about that that's maybe a little bit stronger for us is which God are we serving? Are we serving the God of our father or are we serving the God of others? The proper aim we know of righteousness is to please our Heavenly Father. We are called to be perfect like He is perfect. Jesus ended the section in chapter 5 with that admonition, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And now here we're called to please our Heavenly Father. Jesus gives us examples in patterns to help us understand then what that looks like. And you might wonder, why is he giving these particular examples? Why giving and praying and fasting? These three things were cornerstones of Jewish piety or Jewish, Jewish religious life. In other words, if you were a good religious Jew in Christ's time, you definitely gave to the poor and you definitely prayed and you definitely fasted. These are normal religious life for the Jews of Jesus day and so Jesus is telling his Jewish audience how they ought to think about these normal everyday religious practices what kind of aim they ought to have and i think because of that we can generalize from this text 
So what I mean by that is Jesus is not here only telling you how to do giving, praying, and fasting. Jesus is here telling you how to do any act of righteousness, any good deed, anything done for the sake of the Father is supposed to be done like this. Any kind of pursuit of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like this. Let's look at the first example, generosity, in verses 2 to 4. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice here what Jesus is warning against is a type of giving, a type of action that flows from the motive of the heart. In other words, the people that Jesus is addressing, these hypocrites, craved the praise of people. We see in verse 2, right, that they may be praised by others. Their motive was the praise of people. And so what did they do? They gave in a way that encouraged that they got that, right? They sounded trumpets before them. There's a little question as to what exactly this refers to. It seems like at a particular, at this particular time in Jerusalem, it was common to blow trumpets when it was time to give alms to the poor or give to the needy. And they would blow trumpets to call everybody to come and give. And the faster you rushed off to the temple to give your gift, the more righteous you looked and the more praise you got from others who said, wow, look at them. They're so generous. Right? Or as, as Ruby's illustration in the children's notes, behold my generosity. I like that. Their action flows from their motive. It was right and good to give to the poor, but the motive was corrupt. Notice they did get a reward. They did get the praise that they were seeking, right? Jesus is not denying that there is some benefit that we feel when we practice a kind of public righteousness that seeks others' approval. Namely, people think good of us. Particularly if we read the crowd and figure out what kind of righteousness this group likes, and we act that way, people will think that we're exemplary, and they might even give us compliments. There is a reward that comes from it, but it is a reward that pales in comparison to the reward the Father gives, right? It's a reward that is here and temporary. And in verse 1, Jesus warns, they will have no reward from the Father who is in heaven. Their righteousness will be worthless from the Father who is in heaven. But if the problem is motive, the question then that plagues me at least, and maybe it plagues you, I think it will if you think about it, is how do you change motive? Like, how do you change what's so, so inner to yourself that you don't even necessarily think about it, right? Like, I, I, I wager that most of us, when we do good things, do not always directly think about why we're doing those good things. We do them either out of habit or out of circumstances, kind of cueing us like this is a good and righteous thing to do. We don't necessarily think about why we're doing them. And when we do... That's just kind of an observation about ourselves and our own souls, right? It's something we feel, not really something that's easy to just flip a switch and change. How do we change motive? Notice here, this is really interesting what Jesus does. The problem is motive. But what does Jesus do to address the problem? What does he tell 
his disciples. Notice, he does not tell them, feel differently. He does not tell them, feel differently. Your motive is wrong. You need to change it. Look what he says. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus prescribes in response to motives that are corrupt is action, something to do, something to do. Jesus prescribes an action, not just feel different, but do differently. Why does Jesus do that? I think the reason Jesus does that is because what Jesus is doing is he is prescribing an action that reorients the motive of the heart. Jesus is prescribing an action that reorients the motive of the heart. What Jesus is doing is he is calling for a private righteousness. That's what he means when he says, do not let your left hand know what you're doing. Not literally like, you know, grab a handful of cash and, and throw it over here and don't pay attention. Like, but, but have this privateness to your acts of giving that reorients your heart motive. We'll talk about how that works as we explore his examples. Jesus is calling for action is the important thing for us to note about this first one. His response to corrupt motives is to call for action that reorients motives. How does that work? Let's look at the example of prayer. Let's look at the example of prayer. Verse 5 to verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heat up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Notice in this text, the same pattern is present that Jesus has already established in talking about giving. He starts out, right? When you pray. When you pray, just like when you give to the needy, you must not be like the hypocrites. Don't do this. Because they're doing this wrongly, for the wrong motive, right? They're doing this to be seen by others, verse uh, 5. And that is the extent of their reward. And then he gives another counterexample. But instead, do this, right? He's prescribing another action. Do this to reorient your heart motives. If we want to understand how the private righteousness that Jesus is prescribing reorients our heart, we have to understand the nature of that private righteousness. In other words, we have to understand what Jesus means by in secret. The question that should hopefully pop into our minds as we read this admonition particularly is, is Jesus prohibiting public prayer? Right? Like we pray publicly in our services. So clearly we don't think that's what Jesus means here. 
And if we read the rest of the Bible, we see that Jesus himself prays publicly, that his disciples pray publicly, that the early church prays publicly. Jesus' model prayer that he gives, the Our Father, is a corporate prayer, our, right? It's strange to pray that in a closet by yourself. So what does Jesus mean? I think here that his concern is deeper than public versus private. Remember, his, his, his focus is the motive of our righteous acts. And so I think his concern is deeper than public versus private. And to limit it to that is to miss the point that I believe Jesus is making. Jesus is not condemning all public righteousness. Just that public righteousness, which is aimed at the approval of others, right? That's his whole point, the whole idea from verse 1, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. If Jesus was prohibiting all public righteousness, then he would say, beware of practicing your righteousness before people. That's all he would say. The in order to be seen by them is so important. It's the motive that matters, and that's what Jesus is condemning. Notice, too, it's not just private prayer that is by nature of being private good. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples? Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, right? Verse 7. You can do that in public, but you can also do that in private. Because the problem with that is they think they will be heard by their many words. And you can convince yourself, even in your private prayer life, that the more you say to God, the better he will hear you. Or the more rightly you say things to God, the better he will hear you. That he hears you because of some formula that you do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that it is the motive that matters. We see this too from his calling to be salt and light, right? Like, Jesus just got done saying, let others see your good works so they can give glory to God in verse 16 of chapter 5. And now here he's saying, don't let others see your good works. So either Jesus is contradicting himself or he means something deeper than just public versus private. I think he's getting at motive. The motive ought to be the glory of the Father as we see in verse 16 of chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, verse 16, after calling people salt and light, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why were the hypocrites letting others see their good works and letting their light shine? So that they may see your good works and give glory to you. Jesus is condemning that. Jesus is calling us not to be glory thieves. Not to be someone like maybe someone at a wedding, a best man or a maid of honor, who decides to act in such a way as to try to make the wedding all about them. Right? We would watch that as someone watching that wedding and we would say, that's abhorrent. That's wicked. That's evil. Why would you do that? The wedding is about the bride and groom and about the beauty of marriage given to us by God to show the glory of Christ. The wedding is not about a best man or about a maid of honor. And yet when we act in a way that lets our good deeds be shown so that others might praise us, that's what we're doing. We're we're acting as glory thieves. And Jesus is condemning that and saying, do not do that. You get a reward, 
You get some glory. But it's not the kind of reward you want. It's not the kind of reward that satisfies. Notice also how the right action that Jesus prescribes is grounded. Jesus tells us to do something, but it's not just random. If it's not based on private versus public, what's it based on? Jesus prescribes a right action which is grounded in rightly knowing God. In rightly knowing who God is. So what does he tell us to do? Don't be like the hypocrites and stand in the street corners so that you can be seen by others while you pray. But instead, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Why would you pray in secret? Because your father sees in secret. That's what he is like. He doesn't need you to stand on a street corner so he can notice your attempts at righteousness. He sees your faithfulness. Not only does he see, but your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's the second example Jesus gives regarding prayer. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. Verse 7, as the Gentiles do. Why do they do that? Because they think that they will be heard for their many words. In other words, it's not just a wrong motive that is the problem here. It's actually a wrong understanding of who God is. The Gentiles, their understanding of the gods was that you hedged your bets and you prayed to as many gods as you could think of. And perhaps one of them is a real God that will hear you and grant your request. That's not what God is like. He's not like a slot machine that if you just pull the lever enough times, eventually you'll hit the jackpot. So we just keep repeating That's not what God is like. What we must understand is that our Father knows what we need before we even ask Him. And as we see later in chapter 6, not only does He know what we need, but He's generous. He cares for His people better than He cares for the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. And so, because of this, Jesus prescribes these actions. A disordered motive... A motive that seeks to glorify yourself and disordered action, righteousness that is grounded in this false motive, reveals actually a disordered knowledge of God. It reveals that you don't actually know God like you think you do. That you have some knowledge of God that is askew. And right action, grounded in right knowing God, then actually changes because we recognize who God is. As the one who sees and rewards, and as the one who is generous and knows our need, it grounds our motive then to be give glory to him because of his good care for us. This is what happens in Jesus' model prayer here, what we might call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Right action, right praying this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of those are grounded In rightly knowing who God is. That that is right to say about him because of who he is. It would be wrong to say about me or about someone else, another human being, right? Hallowed be my name? No. But it's right to say about the Father because they know who he is. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. These, These petitions are grounded in the reality of who God is. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this way, not because this is means just this is all you say, 
but because he's trying to give a counterexample of the Gentiles who pray and think they'll be heard for their many words. And he's saying, no, prayer is relatively simple, guys. It's grounded in who the Father is and in who he has created you to be and in your particular needs to follow him in his kingdom mission. I want to move on to the example of fasting. Before I do, I want to mention briefly verses 14 to 15. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. That might be a little confusing. Jesus is clearly not teaching that you earn his forgiveness by forgiving others. What he is teaching, I'm going to save until we get to the parable that he tells later that deals with this exact subject. Okay? So I'd be happy to talk to any of you about what this means after the service, but I don't want to go into it here because Jesus addresses it later. Right now, he's just trying to clarify initially for his disciples, what does it mean that we pray that God would forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors? He goes into much more detail later, so we'll get there. For now, let us look at verse 14 on fasting. I'm sorry, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fast, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This, again, follows that basic pattern. When you do this act of righteousness, don't do it like the hypocrites do, because they're seeking a reward that is glory for themselves. But instead, do it this way, and that will reorient your heart motive. Notice in this passage, though, this passage, Jesus helps us understand rightly what it means to be a hypocrite in these regards. That's important, Because normally our understanding of what a hypocrite is, is someone who believes one thing but does another, right? Is inconsistent, inauthentic. They lie with their actions about what they really think or believe. But notice, Jesus is actually prescribing action that sounds hypocritical if we think about it. What is Jesus telling them to do? Fast privately, but when you're in public, pretend you're not fasting. Anoint your head, wash your face. Do the opposite of what is expected if you are fasting. Jesus sounds like he's telling them to do something that is hypocritical. But it's not. It's not because Matthew has a particular understanding of what it means to be a hypocrite. And it goes beyond being merely deceitful or inauthentic. See, when we think of hypocrite, we tend to think primarily of being hypocritical on purpose. In other words, I know I'm not a certain way and I know I ought to be that way, so I'm going to act differently in public because I think that's what people expect. But I know in reality that's not true. Right? Like, I am being a hypocrite on purpose. But that's not what Matthew primarily thinks of when he thinks of a hypocrite. It is possible... In Matthew's view, I believe, to be an accidental hypocrite. To be, in other words, self-deceived. To believe that you are doing the right and good thing and not even realize how corrupt your motives actually are. This is what Matthew is talking about here when he talks about the hypocrites. 
They are self-deceived regarding who God is and what God is like. So that they're acting in a way that they think is righteous and they think is good. Think about how it might come about with someone giving. Generosity is a good thing. It is commanded even by God. And so these first century Jews, hoping to be generous, wanting to be obedient to the word of the Lord, seek to give, right? And it goes well. They're they're seeking to give. They're seeking to be obedient to God and honor him. And then what happens? Someone gives more and they look and say, well, they gave more than me. Maybe I better give a little bit more. And they, and they give, they give even more and they try start to make it a contest between the two of them. Or they, they give generously and they end up with their name on the side of a temple stone or something like that. And pretty soon they pass by it and they, and they're reminded of how generously they gave and they think, man, yeah, that was good. That felt good. Right? And, and then maybe next time they give and they don't get a temple stone and they're kind of upset that no one noticed. And pretty soon their heart has drifted from pure motives of honoring God to honoring themselves. And they don't even know it because they're hypocrites, but they're accidental hypocrites. They're self-deceived about who God is and what righteousness is like, what the purpose is. Of righteousness is. There's a subtle shift that happens in our hearts. And there's subtle lying that happens about God and his righteousness. Jeremiah talks about our hearts being deceitful above all things. And that's true. We drift into this without even realizing it. It's important for us to know this because it's important for us to recognize that the opposite of hypocrisy is not being authentic to ourselves. That's prized in our generation today. Be authentic. Be real. Have integrity. Those are good words and those are good things. But the opposite of hypocrisy in God's word is not being authentic to yourself, but it's being authentic to who God is. It's living in right accord with how God himself is. In other words, being not a hypocrite is telling the truth about God with your words and with your actions. And that's how you can end up not realizing that you're being hypocritical because you're lying about God with your words and your actions and you don't even realize it. I think you see the reality, I hope you do, I certainly do and I feel it, that in some sense, at some level, we are all at various times hypocrites. That we all struggle to have pure motives in our pursuit of righteousness. What do we do then? What do we do if we're self-deceived like this? Again, this is why Jesus prescribes this private righteousness. Because what happens is as we practice private righteousness, it reorients our heart, first of all, by revealing the poverty of our heart. In other words... Go and try to pray to God and try not to be distracted in three minutes. And you'll recognize how hard this actually is to have a heart that's truly motivated by just connecting with your father. And being rewarded by him seeing in secret. Or go and try to give and recognize how difficult it feels if no one notices. When we practice private righteousness, we experience the poverty of our heart because we're removed 
from all of the stuff that protects us from recognizing that. We're removed from the public praise that comes by saying, man, you, you're, you're so on fire. God is so active in you. This is so great. We're removed by the tempta- from the temptation to that and we're left with just us and God and we recognize that our motives usually aren't as pure as we think. Jesus prescribes this private righteousness not just because it lets us recognize this, but because recognizing that actually leads us then to repentance. We recognize that and we know what God is like, that he sees it, and we're moved to repent. And this reorients our heart towards the honor and glory of God. The reality is, friends, that if giving generosity and prayer and fasting do not exist in your private life, then any of that that you do publicly is hypocritical. And that goes for all acts of righteousness. If they do not exist in your private life, then your public doing of them is hypocritical. Your public doing of them is not honoring God. And I say that as one that feels the weight of that conviction myself because I'm required by nature of my position to pray publicly every week. And I know how impoverished my private prayer life is. And so my response to that statement is, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us. This is true of all acts of righteousness, all the religious stuff we do. Whether it's reading your Bible, whether it's singing, whether it's serving, whether it's evangelism, even the stuff that we do that we don't think of as inherently religious. How many of us are tempted to parent in a way that we can be seen by others and receive praise? How many of us are tempted to do our work in a way that we may be seen by others and receive praise? And yet we are commanded by scripture to work as unto Christ. And then ultimately means for his glory, not ours. The key issue for us, friends, is whose approval are we seeking? And the diagnostic question that we ought to ask ourselves is, is our public righteousness an overflow of our private righteousness? In other words, the way we're designed is that we seek the glory of God by entering our inner room and praying to our father who sees in secret we seek the glory of god by giving in secret not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing we seek the glory of god by fasting not in a way that draws attention to it but in a way that seeks and hungers to know our father more and then out of an overflow of that we naturally pursue this righteousness in public We, out of an overflow of that, we naturally pursue being salt and light and having others see our good deeds and give glory to God. Is our public righteousness an overflow of our private righteousness? I imagine you, like me, the answer is sometimes. Sometimes. But often not. Often not. And if we think about this, it reveals what we crave. It reveals what we believe about God and who he is. Because, as I said before, doing good deeds for others' approval is a sign that our relationship with God is not right. That there's something wrong. That there's something askew. Maybe we don't believe that he really sees what we do in private or cares about it. 
Maybe we don't believe that acts of righteousness count unless someone notices them or unless they're done in a public setting like church on Sunday. Maybe we don't believe that the reward that God offers will satisfy us in the same way or even better than the reward that we receive from others. Maybe we believe that it's better to gain the recognition of our co-workers than it is to be rewarded by God in secret, whatever that means. Maybe we don't believe that our righteousness will be enough. We secretly believe that the Father seeing in secret is not a good thing because he knows that our righteousness is not enough. And so instead, we pursue the approval of others outside of our Father so that we can feel like maybe we've done enough that God might be pleased with us too. Maybe we don't believe that God will actually forgive what he sees when he really sees what's in private. So friends, we turn to others because it's easier to feel accepted and earn their praise than it is to feel like we've earned our way with God. The praise of others though, friends, the, the, the fleeting reward that is will not satisfy because it's ultimately temporary. Others are fickle. They might praise you today and tomorrow they might deride you. Every one of us knows, if we're honest, that those we seek praise from would not actually praise us if they could really see what's in secret. It's ultimately futile and empty to seek the praise of others. The only place to go from here, friends, is to confess and repent. To confess the ways that we have sought the approval of men by our righteousness. To repent and to turn from that. Where do we turn? We turn to the gospel. We turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe and rest in the gospel which shows us who the Father really is. The Father sees in secret. This is the comfort that the gospel brings. The whole point of this pursuit of public righteousness from these hypocrites is to be seen. And here we have the Father who actually does see. That brings conviction, but that also brings tremendous comfort. Psalm 139 talks about there being no place that you can go to escape the presence of the Lord Almighty. And that's a double-edged sword because it's terrifying for the sinner who is refusing to repent and continuing in rebellion. But it is comforting for the sinner who has found themselves at the end of their rope with nowhere to go and nowhere to turn and finds that they haven't outran God. It is a precious promise that the Father sees in secret, he sees and he forgives and he loves and he knows and he rewards. The father sees in secret and he sees the poverty of your spirit. And how does he respond according to Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does the father do when he sees your poverty of spirit? He doesn't recoil. He doesn't recoil, but he gives the gift of his son and the gift of his kingdom. He gives and he calls you to receive that mercy and to extend it to others and to rest in that and to practice private 
righteousness that then overflows into public righteousness. And so others see your good deeds that you have done because you are resting in the father. And they give glory to him because that's where glory belongs. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to respond to Jesus words this morning. That is easier to say than it is to do. Let's pray and ask our Father to help us. To help us do that. Let's pray. Father, I confess on our behalf. I'm confident that it's true of every one of us in here. That this text is convicting to our souls And that we recognize that we have a real poverty of spirit. We recognize that we do not pursue righteousness often for your glory, but for our own. Even in ways we don't realize until we think really hard about it. Until we see our own poverty as we turn inward. Father, we confess that you have given us your precious and very great promises in Jesus Christ. And we stand on the promise that the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I ask that you would help us not take your grace for granted, but that you would help us rest in that glorious truth. And you would help us out of that pursue private and public righteousness. The kind of redemptive righteousness that gets at sin at the root, cuts it out. Brings the restoration that you promise in your kingdom. I thank you for the precious privilege it is to participate in that. I thank you for giving us Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for sending your spirit. To bring these things alive in us. To change us in ways we could not change ourselves. We praise you. Thank you. And we ask your help. 